we've got about 35, 40, 45 minutes, depending on how long we go. What, what What's your passion topic? Um, uh, I mean, I have a lot. So it's, um, how about this? Women's Bill of Rights, economic issues, media bias. That's something I could talk about for forever. Because I'm a, tr- a journalist by training for my undergrad. And that's was a big part of why I eventually came to support Donald Trump was he was so spot on about liberal media bias. The Walton Show for July 13th. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, today I've I've got a wealth of riches. Carrie Sheffield is with the Independent Women's Forums joining us, and I spent some time with her bio, and it turns out she knows something about everything. And uh, her long suit, her primary focus is on economic issues, but she also, in the Women's Forum, also deals with uh, the Women's Bill of Rights and uh, uh, media bias. And basically, their their tagline is all issues are are all issues are women's issues. So that gives us a, a a broad playing field to uh, to work with. Uh, Carrie, well-educated, went to Brigham Young, Harvard. Uh, she's done stints at American Enterprise Institute, Competitive Institute, Americans Prosperity, sort of the all-star lineup of conservative groups. So, uh, so welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. And thanks for all this beautiful art. I love it. It's my wife's. She's, oh, over, okay. she's over there. She, Amazing. Yeah, this, <laughs> she, paint, she paints everything here. And, uh, beautiful. Not the ceilings, I should we <laughs> <laughs> but but all the beautiful stuff she's wow, done. Wow, so talented! And uh, yeah, we've been very involved with the art world, so it's nice to bring it into the show. That's great. Uh, you're up. I th- I want to start with your your sort of power alley that you've been working with Independent Women's Forum, which are economic issues, and then I want to go into some other of the the women's issue and the Women's Bill of Rights and things like that. Uh, you, you've written about Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve Board. And what kind of job is Jay doing there? It's a family show, so I'll keep it clean. <laughs> no, I'm, just well, I'm not a fan, to put it mildly. It's a very tolerant family. <laughs> no, used, to, used to play speaking. No, uh, I've, since becoming a Christian, I've learned to curtail my, I, I had an <laughs> anger phase of my life, but I, I'm, pr- I'm pretty pretty zen uh, most days. But no, I, I think uh, Chairman Powell, um, I just, I think he's, not leading. He's really a laggard. I think he's reactive. Uh, he's completely was caught off guard with the inflation issue. And now he's playing catch up and, you know, 9% inflation last year is painful to families. And we're now 30 months into the Biden administration. What we have is a $5,600 median household income pay cut for families. Because of inflation. They, they claim rate wages are rising, but wages are no. not rising nearly not. enough to make up for inflation. No. So it's $5,600 50, per, uh, per yeah, family? According to the uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, they did an analysis, and that's what they found. And it's that's a that's why 52%, according to CNBC, 52% of households are using their savings to finance basic things like paying rent and buying groceries. This is unsustainable. 
Um, and I blame I, I, the, the, it's not just not just Chairman Powell. It's, it's Bidenomics. It's, uh, you know, printing money, um, both at the Fed, but also in Congress. Well, the thing I find stunning is we don't seem to have anybody in the leadership and the administration who recognizes what the real problem is. And the real problem is spending. Yeah. Well, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts, because I know you were on economic issues in the Trump White House, because. Yeah. This was a question I kept asking the Trump economic team was in 2020. And I don't know if you're there toward the end. I know you were with the Beachhead team, but um, I was asking, why are you writing such big checks during COVID? We don't know exactly if we need all the stimulus money. And that, that's Democrats will point to that and say, well, it started under Trump and we're just basically finishing the job. Well, the, the thing that's striking is that Janet, neither Janet Yellen nor Jay Powell are the two leading uh, economic leaders will will face up to the fact that spending is really the issue, and they don't even admit the economy is in, is in trouble and that inflation is really hurting people. And we've got Biden out saying, "No, everything's fine." And uh, yes, and his former chief of staff saying that it's a, a high class problem. Inflation's a high class. Who said that? Uh, it was Ron Klain had retweeted somebody saying that inflation is a high class people's problem. <laughs> So it couldn't be more out of touch than that, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why 72% of Americans, according to CNN, say that the Amer the economy is doing poorly. Um, and, yeah, the spending is completely out of control. Um, this uh, this bill that just passed, you know, the, the, the deal with Speaker McCarthy, what was your take on that? You know, I asked you before we get started, you could ask questions. I didn't realize we'd get into this right away. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you my take if you want. <laughs> I love I love having the tables turned, although we've got a round table here. So. It's a lazy season. <laughs> I invited a journalist on, and the journalist is now, <laughs> I'm, I'm the news. <laughs> What's my take on Kevin McCarthy? I think he No, must... no, no, the bill, the, the bill that he, the deal well, he brokered well, the there on, the spending the, bill. You know, the thing that's interesting about this administration is that everything's about climate and everything's about uh critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion. They've got a whole of government approach to everything they're doing, and even our foreign policy with China, they really see that as a climate uh, issue. They don't see China as a threat to our country. They see it as just, well, if we can just make nice with China and China will agree to go along with their climate agenda, then uh, uh, that that's going to be okay, ignoring the fact that uh, President Xi seems to have China on a war footing, and they're really getting ready to uh, do something about Taiwan. We don't know yet what. But that's I'm, I'm veering away from the point I wanted to make, though. When you think about their agenda, the whole of government agenda, climate, the bills they're passing, the trillion-dollar bills, the last one what was the Inflation Reduction Act, which is Orwellian. Orwellian. I mean, you couldn't come up with a did anything but, but yes. big chunks of that, over a trillion dollars, I think about a trillion, maybe as much as a trillion and a half is for the climate mm -hmm. agenda. And they gave John Podesta a $400 billion venture fund to give to friends. And then if you look yeah. at who, it, you know, the climate industrial complex, if you look at who benefits, it's really all the Democrat donors, venture capital funds that have got interest in green energy and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is the climate agenda has become a massive vehicle for cronyism and corruption. Absolutely. 
So what do I think about the bill? I think it's a catastrophe and we're spending on all the wrong things. I don't know that you know Mark Mills at Manhattan Institute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked at Manhattan Institute briefly. Yes, and he's oh, their I energy forgot. I did. Yes. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's wonderful and he's analyzed yes. the, uh, you know, the cost of all this. And he says, you know, simply put, oil and gas, natural gas requires no subsidies. It meets the market test. Wind and solar, batteries for cars, all this requires massive subsidies. And if you went 100% to wind and solar, we'd our whole tax bill would be subsidizing energy that doesn't make any uh, economic mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, and it's we know this. It's this, in Germany, Europe is this is not happening in a vacuum. As far as U.S. policymakers doing the exact same terrible mistakes that Europe's made. And Europe is now even more reliant on coal, more reliant on Russia. I mean, I, that, I, I think that's a big part of why Putin felt emboldened to invade Ukraine was because he knew that he had a vice grip around Europe. I mean, uh, it is true that NATO, I think, gave him a you know, much more robust response than Putin was expecting. But I do think that he was incentivized not only by the spectacular failure in the pullout in Afghanistan by the part of Biden, but also by the fact that uh, he had so much leverage over Europe uh, because of their green energy religion, which is not based in facts. It is a religion. It's a, it's a religion. And the thing about their vulnerabilities is that they're now see, you're now seeing it now they're a year and a half into this Ukraine thing where they're really not willing to do what's necessary to, 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 to complete this war. And so because they're afraid that Russia is going to, uh, hurt them. <laughs> so I don't know. We're wandering into topics that uh, I, 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 what, what I'd like to do is, is to, I've got a, since I've got a journalist here and you're asking me all the questions, I want to turn around and ask sure. two questions. Um, the Women's Bill of Rights, which is something you all are pushing. Yes. I did a show with Jay Richards just a few weeks ago and we mm -hmm. put it out and, you know, it looks like this whole notion of redefining biological sex in law and federal law and all the regulations is not as biological sex, but gender identity and, and, uh, would, would just dramatically gut almost all the, all the laws we have, especially title nine, mm -hmm. uh, and women's sports and would also make the whole prison situation crazy. And you've, I, you know, your group has got something, the women's bill of rights, which would go take that head on and, and, mm -hmm. uh, define this properly in law. Absolutely. So Women's Bill of Rights, if folks want to check it out, it's womensbillofrights.com. And it's sometimes when we, when I say the phrase, people get a little nervous. They're like, are you trying to create new rights? No, actually what it's doing is just basically defining what a woman is and acknowledging the case law in the United States. Case law recognizes that women are different from men. And what Women's Bill of Rights does is defines what a woman is. And because of the biological difference that's been recognized in case law for centuries now, um, there are inherent, you know, benefits to being a woman that the left wants to completely obliterate. And by benefits, I mean things like we don't have to go into the draft as women. Um, the court of law is very beneficial quite often to women um, and mothers in domestic disputes uh, when it comes to custody 
um, and divorce settlements, uh, gender for women. Uh, there are many cases where women, and then also, as you mentioned, with prisons and sports and battered women's shelters, uh, bathrooms. I mean, it's just everyday pervasive common life. Uh, women are recognized as biologically distinct from men. And so this bill codifies what a woman is. Uh, the Women's Bill of Rights was written by my colleague, Jennifer Braceres, who is our director of our uh, Independent Women's Legal Center. She was a U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner under George W. Bush. She's a Harvard Law grad. Um, and she and uh, my colleague, her deputy, Inez Stepman, co-authored it as well. And uh, it's a piece of legislation that's been signed into law in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, it was passed by the Kansas legislature. The female Democrat governor tried to veto it, but she was overridden by the legislature. So it's now on the books in Kansas, which we're very happy about. So, um, and we're we expecting some action in Oklahoma as well. So what you would like states to do is to adopt, to adopt in every state to adopt the Women's Bill of Rights to make it a state state law? Sure. We're also doing it at the federal level as well, but given Would this the be a political... constitutional amendment? Well, not as an amendment, but okay. as a bill in Congress, because okay. again, it's not creating any... The, the Constitution already has protections for women through the Equal Protection Clause. Mm -hmm. And the courts have recognized the difference between men <clears throat> and women that in order to satisfy the constitutional protections of the Equal Protection Clause, there needs to be distinct protections for women that have been enshrined in law now for centuries. And so by completely trying to eviscerate what it means to be a woman, um, it is, we believe, unconstitutional. It's also really bad science. And then also there's the fact that public polling is on our side as well, too. So I see it really as a three-pronged victory for us. Uh, we've got the Constitution, we've got science, biology, and we've got the public behind us. Why haven't feminists come out more against the trans movement? Well, it's interesting. I think the term feminist, we like to reclaim it in some respects. I think that-, that Well, they're that, like three or, I understand that they're like three or four or five or six generations of feminists. You're like a sure. first generation feminist, a second. Is that, is that- Well, yes, they're in waves and things like that. The wave, but, okay. Yes. Um, we're actually working with a, a progressive, I know. What wave of feminism is the Independent Women's Forum? <laughs> well, we, we, the, we think the term feminist has been co-opted by the left, unfortunately. It has. Um, so but we, don't, we don't usually use that word for us uh, necessarily, at least in the way it's used in this context in our co culture right now. But, uh, but we are working with uh, a more traditionally leftist feminist group called the Women's Liberation Front. Uh, their acronym is <laughs> WOLF. Yes. Okay. Uh, and... They are at the forefront of, of sounding the alarm on women's prisons in California um, because you can have, you know, a violent murderer, rapist one day wake up who's a male and say, oh, I think I'm a female and no questions asked. He'll be put on a bus and transferred over to the female prison. And so there have been reports, to my knowledge, of violence being committed against biological women from biological male prisoners who are transferred over. And it's I, I mean, I, I, again, I believe this is a, a fundamental violation of constitutional rights. Um, but to answer your question on why are traditional leftist feminists not uh, more engaged on it, the, the Women's Liberation Front, we're, we're happy to work with them. Um, but unfortunately, they are 
attacked by their own leftists. Um, there's a term that you might know. Are you familiar with the term TERF? T-E-R-F to be a TERF? No. T-E-R-F. It's a new new lingo for you. Is this this, this a a verb or a noun? It's a noun. It's a noun. TERF. T-E-R-F, a TERF. Okay. So this (laughs) slur now, it's it's used all over, you know, on Twitter. Um, J.K. Rowling is described pejoratively as a TERF. What's the acronym? It stands stands for for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. That's a TERF. (laughs) So <laughs> she's a turf. She's a turf because she has the audacity to say that women should be allowed to compete against other women in sports. Therefore, she's a trans exclusionary radical feminist. So the left again is eating their own because she is very progressive in everything else from their perspective. And they think this is a betrayal because they have fallen under this neo-Marxist critical theory and critical gender theory is part of that. This is Bill Walton, and we're, we're uh, this Bill Walton show, and I'm with Carrie Sheffield, Independent Women's Forum, and we've uh, started out with a very dry subject of the Federal Reserve, and now we're moving into uh, trans theory and cultural Marxism and the really deeper agenda of what's going on in society. So Jay Powell can rest easy. We're not going to go further into what we think about his job, but we are going to dig into these trans, the, the trans rights, and you know, you, you know, the deeper agenda is, is Marxist. Mm-hmm. You want to amplify? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it really dates back, in my view, uh, to critical theory, uh, which started in Germany, you know, um, and the fact critical that... Critical theory in the 30s. Yes. Uh, in Frankfurt, the Frankfurt School. Okay. Was created by a bunch of Marxists because they didn't like the way the world was was run. They thought Western civilization was too hierarchical. They wanted to disrupt Unlike the China or India or any, anyway, anyway, it's all, it's <laughs> yes. all Western civ. It's anyway, all, there yes. are those civilizations have some similar issues, but anyway. Oh, abs- oh, well, yes, yes. But, um, but you know, it's the self-loathing. Um, <laughs> so it's the suicide. It's the suicide of the West. But, okay. uh, but critical theory was developed. It's Doug Murray. To, yes. Um, to, uh, try to look through a critical lens and look, I don't, I don't want to be, um, I don't, I don't have contempt for people. I, I, I think having contempt is, is a way to alienate people. So I don't, I don't, I hope I'm not, I'm not trying to sound contemptuous. It's more that it's dangerous. It's a dangerous notion. It's okay that... here to be contemptuous of the cultural Marxists. <laughs> well, I, I think in okay. order to change minds, I think it's, uh, if if someone is dabbling in this, it's it's better to be persuasive but, as opposed to just. But we're not going to change their minds but, because the agenda is really about power. Well, that's true. I mean, yeah. they want the power, they want the money. They're using this theory as a way to to deconstruct, uh, you know, regular regular cultural institutions so they can be in charge. But these German theorists, that w- w- we call them critical theory. Well, they found a fairly hostile environment when Hitler was in charge of Germany. And so, as I understand the story, they picked up and moved to New York. Yes. And they found themselves at Columbia, Columbia. Teachers College. Mm-hmm. And that became Columbia University. The hotbed of it, yep. And Columbia University remains the hotbed or yes. the epicenter of this thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, you're right. And, and it's just gotten progressively infectious beyond just these, the faculty lounge, you know, these absurd theories um, that a man can be a woman and that like you're 
an what? evil person for asking any questions about it. Um, and I think that that is, in some respects, I give them credit that a very small group of committed individuals has had such enormous impact. And in that respect, it gives me hope that a small group of committed people who believe in the truth can push back and also have a, an equal and even greater uh, positive impact. Well, if, if you're, you know, you're a great example. Heather Higgins, who founded your group, is a, is a force of nature. Oh, she is. Firebrand. And if, but if, we love if, her, yes. If anybody could take a minority and take over everything, it would be Heather. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and, and the talent she's recruited <laughs> is extraordinary. Um, so how do we, how, let's do it quickly. How do you, would, do you all have a theory about how they've been so effective in taking over all the institutions? Well, it, it certainly was, it was gradual, so it was incremental, uh, and it was comprehensive. Um, I think the cultural battles uh, really came to a head in the 1960s. Um, that's when you really had this massive cultural disruption um, with the norms of sexuality, um, heterosexuality. The norms of heterosexuality were broken in the 60s uh, in terms of uh, premarital sex, extramarital sex. Um, that's when it started. Um, and, and then drug culture as well. And I think what's, what's really sad about all of this, you know, that the phrase that liberal feminists like to throw around to dismantle the patriarchy, that's one of their favorite phrases is to dismantle the patriarchy. Well, they've actually done that, uh, in the black family. They have won they have dismantled the patriarchy in the black family to the point where now we have around three out of every four black babies born into a home uh, that doesn't have two parents. And before the 60s, before uh, LBJ and the Great Society programs, the reverse was true, um, that there, the fathers were present. And through the structures of these welfare programs, we were just talking about Vivek Ramaswamy, that was his big exchange that got Don Lemon fired. It was so, talking about these programs and what, how decimating they've been to the black family. And Don told him he couldn't talk about black people because he wasn't it black. Wasn't black. Yep. <laughs> it's racism. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but the thing that got him fired was that he said that in whatever race you are, that he was dismissive of Vivek because Vivek was, and I, I've been on with Don Lemon as well. And, uh, I was Vivek actually, was brown, but he wasn't black. Exactly. So he had no credibility. I, I was actually banned from the Don Lemon show because I had the audacity to uh, stand up for President Trump. Um, and I was told that it's okay to be sexist, but not racist. That's basically what Don Lemon told me. And I said, I refuse to accept the premise. I said, they're both wrong. Good for you. <laughs> Being a Trump person is a very dangerous <laughs> thing to be in this town. And of course, this is up in New York yeah, where you were talking yeah. with him. <laughs> well, you know, when I'm in D.C., which is where... I spend an awful lot of time, you know, I, if I'm surrounded by people who I don't agree with and they don't, and, but I, and I find them wanting to talk as if I, they assume I'm, I'm with them. Mm -hmm. And I found you can really shut them down pretty quickly when you say, well, you know, I work for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they go, oh my God, we got to get out of here. They, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to clear the air and clear the room. Um, you you mentioned you, you know you're you're a journalist and one of the things that got you in involved in this was the media bias. Yes. 
And you've been right in the thick of all this for a couple of decades now. Mm -hmm. So amplify. Yeah. And so, you know, I was a journalism undergrad, as you mentioned, at Brigham Young University. Yeah. Uh, I believe I did six internships before getting my first full-time job. They were journalism internships from covering the Utah legislature to Newsweek magazine in New York City to the Shelby Star down in North Carolina near Charlotte. And I learned to talk like I, this. I noticed this accent <laughs> moving in the... We're moving south. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and also for a newspaper in rural Missouri called the Kirksville Daily Express. Yeah. So I had the whole gamut of urban and rural uh, news media, and I was just in love. I was enamored with journalism and local journalism uh, and just the, the notion that it was journalism that uh, really, in many respects, especially television journalism, it helped pushed forward a lot of the civil rights issues in the 1960s. Um, it To have the visual image in the homes on people's screens of what was happening with the hoses and the dogs and just the violent beatings of African-Americans wanting the basic right to vote, uh, that was very moving to me in terms of understanding the power of journalism and storytelling. Um, and so it motivated me to work in media and journalism. Uh, so I graduated with this shiny journalism degree, moved to Washington, and I was, it was like the movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I was just disabused, like completely disabused of any your, notion. What was your first job? Uh, so I was working for the Hill newspaper, but I spent a lot of time in the press galleries. You know, I had my credentials. Yeah. Uh, I was at the Hill newspaper. I was at Politico. I was at the Washington Times, uh, going to all of the, you know, junkets and the cocktail parties and I truly did believe that I was part of the fourth estate, the informal, as, as the media calls themselves, the informal fourth branch of government that's meant to be a watchdog on the other three branches. This was in 2005 when I graduated. This was George W. Bush administration, and it became very clear very quickly that I was not surrounded in the D.C. Beltway by journalists, but rather by activists who mm -hmm. really wanted to tear down the Bush administration and uh, everything that he stood for, uh, traditional values. Uh, and for me, I, you know, I, I wanted to be objective. Uh, I, and I was working at Politico, I remember, and the Equal Rights Amendment under Nancy Pelosi, when she got the gavel for the first time, I was in the, in the press gallery when she gaveled in for the first time. And um, they said, we're gonna now we're going to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. And so for the, I did a video interviews with Eleanor Schmiel and a, a number of, you know, radical feminists uh, from, you know, the National Organization of Women, Ms. Foundation or Ms. Magazine. Um, and these were women who, and I, as a journalist, again, I, I was wanting to tell both sides. Growing up, I would have been like, you're going to melt if you're in the same room as these women. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. as a journalist, I wanted to I wanted to tell both sides of this issue, you know, and I was committed to that. Um, but it became very clear that in general, in Washington, that's not the culture, that there is a lockstep leftist narrative that everyone must fall under. And when you look at political donations, self-reported ideological uh, designations among journalists, it's usually six or seven to one liberal to conservative. And those are just the ones willing to confess. So, so eventually I just said, you know, at least I'm going to be honest and I'm going to move from news reporting to opinion reporting. 
and I became an opinion writer for Tony Blankley uh, at the Washington Times. He's wonderful. I yes, adored Tony. Was wonderful, yeah. Yes, and uh, and I'm I'm happy to uh, be a fellow with the Steamboat Institute. Did you also fellow. work for Robert Novak? I, I as an intern, yes. I yes, interned okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and he was he was my first segue into Washington. I came as an intern for him, and uh, and I loved what I loved about his journalism was that he he always brought in reporting, and he always had a new nugget. So he had news in addition to his analysis. So he was always adding value. Um, while also voicing his opinion. And eventually, like I said, when I jumped from reporting to being an opinion writer, I wanted to keep that vantage point that Robert Novak always brought, which was, I'm a reporter first, and then I'm adding my analysis secondarily. So uh, one of the reasons we're veering into the personal with you is as I did the research on, you know, we are talking about our show, and the reason I didn't necessarily want to talk about interest rates in the Federal Reserve. You've got a, You've got an extraordinary personal story. And you've got a memoir coming out in a few months. I do. And yes. let's talk about that, because I think it's a heart of the matter issue. And you've gone through the whole... Well, anyway, you tell, you tell, you tell the story. Sure. Well, thank you, Bill. Um, so yes, as you mentioned, uh, my memoir is coming out. And it's funny, sometimes when I've told a couple people, you know, older than me, that I have a memoir coming out. A couple you are a little of, young. What were you, 38, <laughs> 39? Yeah. Uh, 40. I just turned okay, 40. Okay, all right. All right. Um, but a couple age. of them uh, roll their eyes and are like, why do you have a memoir? Like, you're too young for a memoir. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but then when I tell them what happened, I'm like, they're like, okay, yeah, that's a memoir. <laughs> so, but, um, uh, and it's being published by Hachette, which is one of the major publishers. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, I wish that I didn't have to write it or that it wasn't my life, but you know, uh, it's, it's the family God gave me. So, um, and the publishers described it as a, as kind of a cross between hillbillyology so, so, and educated by Tara Westover. So, but I think it's even, you grew up in Utah. Uh, well, partially. Yes. Partially, so, okay. so the name of the book is called the motorhome prophecies. Right. And the reason why is because my father, uh, he has Alzheimer's now, so he's not mobile and um, doesn't have his faculties. But growing up, um, he very much believed that he was a prophet uh, called by God to become the president of the United States someday. And in order to fulfill that prophetic call, um, we had to go in our motorhome and play music on street corners. So he and I were surrounded by amazing art. And in fact, we used to play Dvorak as one of... Um, you were a classical musician. Classical musician. What was your yes. instrument? Violin and oboe. So you're on the street corners playing violin and oboe. Yes, yes, with my seven siblings, and my dad is the conductor, and my mom's the singer and the percussionist and the pianist. So we're having this little family orchestra. My father had amazing credentials. He was a hand-selected protege of Andre Segovia, who was the world's premier classical guitarist from Spain. Oh, so your father um, was a professional musician? He was. He was okay. hand-selected by Andre Segovia to be one of Segovia's protégés. Segovia was knighted by the King of Spain. He won a Lifetime Grammy Award. He had 10 honorary doctorates for his classical guitar. And he hand-selected my father to be, as I said, one of his protégés for not only performance, but also guitar uh, composition. So my father has a master's in music composition. He was a professor of guitar at Brigham Young University. Um, and he won the National Young Composers Contest. So very promising. But he got radicalized uh, when he served a Mormon mission to, to England, 
Um, and, and I must put the caveat that my father's actions were not sanctioned by the LDS church. Eventually he was excommunicated by the LDS church for uh, his extremism. And so I, I'm very clear to make that distinction um, that, I mean, he was certainly motivated by a lot of the Mormon theology, but he was not sanctioned uh, or supported by, I, I wish as a child that the LDS church had done more to intervene to stop our abuse. So basically he made us live in many respects in a third world condition um, throughout different parts of our childhood. So we had 10 people in the motor home. We also were living in sheds. How and many tents. Brother, brothers and sisters? You had uh, eight, eight kids and eight you were kids. the fifth of eight kids. Yes. I have four older brothers, two younger sisters and a younger brother. So you have 10 people living in a motor home. Uh, my mother gave birth when we were living in Greenbelt Park, actually, in Maryland, uh, in a tent. She gave birth in the tent, basically like you know, biblical times or medieval times. Yeah. Um, when I took my ACT test, we were living in a shed with no running water. Um, we had to get it piped in in a little green hose from outside, a little faucet in the ground, um, and no heat. We had to use space heaters because he said that's what God wanted us to do because God wanted us to be humble and to suffer basically because suffering brings you closer to God and uh, that we as a family had a special calling and that Satan himself had reassigned lesser demons in order to personally attack our family because our father was going to be president. So Satan needed to stop that. This had to be terrifying. It was to the point where two of my brothers developed schizophrenia. Um, and uh, we've all suffered. I've, I've was diagnosed with PTSD, depression, fibromyalgia, anxiety. I was suicidal multiple times. Um, it was but, hard. And, but I want to remind us all that you're here and you are extraordinary. And so you went through some journey where you went from that to, and at the same time this is going on, you're taking the ACT and you're playing classical music. I mean, what an extraordinary, what a, what a dichotomy. It really was. I mean, living in a trailer park, you know, a mobile home. And again, I, I make the point in the book that there's no shame in being poor at all. I, I just got back from doing some service mission uh, in Peru, in Lima, Peru, with my church, and very, very poor country. But there's no shame in being poor. The problem in our, with my father was that it was a combination of mental illness, egomaniacal religious dogma, uh, and that combined to create this poverty. It was, it was self-sabotage, basically. Where was your mother in all this? She was very much uh, supportive. Uh, she believes he's a prophet, and so... Unfortunately, he, she believed he was the prophet. Yes, yes. Okay. And she still, <clears throat> she still to this day believes what what our family did was. What, what was he? What was he prophesying? What was he prophesying? Oh, all kinds of things. Um, he would say things like, "For me, he said God told him I had an abortion, but I was a virgin, so I knew there's no such thing as an immaculate abortion." So I was like, "Well, that's <laughs> false. You're not a prophet. You're making this stuff up." Um, he said that, um, I had tried to seduce my brother to have sex with me. Um, my other schizophrenic brother, because one of them did try to rape me. Um, and then the other one said, I tried to seduce him to have sex with me. Um, and he said, yeah, you dress like a slut. So he would make all these horrible pronouncements over my head. And eventually I just felt unsafe. And I said, I don't believe you're a prophet anymore. I, I go in detail of how I came to that discovery that I didn't believe he was a prophet. Um, and it was shattering to me because it's your father. You want to believe what your father tells you. And and he has a deep love. How old were you then? 
16? I was, uh, I think I just, it was either 17 or I just turned 18. Okay. Yeah. It was my senior year. Um, and my, it was shortly after my brother had tried to rape me and I, he was schizophrenic. So I don't, you know, I, it's mental illness. I don't blame him, but I didn't feel safe. And that was sort of a crucible moment where I said, if he's a prophet, like I, I have to figure out how to make this work, but if he's not, then I need to leave because I don't feel safe. Um, so it was, it was actually my first investigative journalism project is my father a prophet? So I investigated my father <laughs> and I found some of his writings that convinced me that he was not. Where were the other grown-ups? Well, and that's something that I had to go through a forgiveness. So the, the subtitle of the book is a journey of healing and forgiveness. Um, yeah. I had to forgive his siblings, her, her siblings. Uh, but the thing is my, my dad completely brainwashed my mom to, to hate her family and took us away um, constantly on the move. Uh, we were almost taken to away. To hate her parents? Yes. You, okay. So um, she was, you were, he took you, you know. Yes. So I, I ended up going to 1717 public schools and homeschool. So it was just disjointed um, education. And, you know, I knew that education, this is a policy. I, 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 the book is, I try to make it as apolitical as possible. There's one policy that I endorse in the book, which is school choice. Um, because two of my schools that I attended were inner city and they were overwhelmingly African-American um, and they were horrible, dangerous environments. And it's sad that these children were trapped in that district. Um, and I, I believe they should have been allowed to go to someplace leave, else. Well, you know, they shut down yeah. homeschooling or not homeschooling, but uh, choice in D.C. Yeah, no. And I, I think it's a civil rights issue. Yeah. I really do. It's, it's the new civil rights issue. It's the, the same white Democrats who blocked the school doors for the children in the South are now blocking the children from leaving. Well, isn't the whole social services system sort of broken because of this notion that you can't intervene and that, uh, I mean, my, my impression is that there are other, there, there should have been some interventions with people seeing what's going on and that didn't happen. Yeah. Well, th the thing is we were always moving when you're in a motorhome, it's really easy to pick up and, and leave oh, if my. someone starts yeah. to suspect anything. So, when I was around four or five years old, we actually did have child welfare services come to our house. They interviewed us. They almost took us away, but we fled and we fled to Utah and, um, and we were off to the next dysfunction. <laughs> and, and my aunts and uncles, they, um, I found out years later as an adult that one of my aunts had actually tried to plan to rescue us. Um, but unfortunately it, it didn't, it didn't work out. And, my father can be very physically intimidating. He's six foot two. He was the University of Utah, which is a you know the flagship school in Utah, public university. He was the intramural wrestling champion, so he's oh barrel chested, very strong. Yeah, and um, he can be very aggressive and um, domineering. Um, and basically, when I found out these writings, uh, and I, that I didn't believe he was prophet, I told him that I needed to go away to college. Um, and that's when he prophesied, he raised his hand to the square, like making an oath. And he said, I prophesy in the name of Jesus, you'll be raped and murdered if you leave. Oh my. Which is what a cult leader would say. So yeah, I had to make a choice because on the one hand, I have my brother who did try to rape me and I have this, <laughs> I'm getting raped. So, <laughs> that's basically very nihilistic. And I was like, I'm leaving. So at that point I just decided to leave. So. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be college. <laughs> so we I have, left and, um, I got disowned. And uh, he said my blood changed. I wasn't his daughter anymore. Um, I had to get... How'd you get into bringing me on? 
Well, I actually transferred there my sophomore year. So I went to a state college in Missouri. So I graduated high school down in the Ozarks. So you graduated um, from high school with good grades. I mean, you were functioning at a very high level all along. Yeah. I mean, I, I to me, my education was my sanity. Yeah. And to my dad's credit and my mom's credit, my mom had been an elementary ed teacher um, and my dad had a master's degree. So on paper, I note in the book, they call it SES, you know, your socioeconomic status. When you're, when you're a sociologist or an economist, it's all about the SES status. And a parent with a master's degree and another parent with a college degree, that's the highest SES when you're looking at these quantitative studies. So on paper, we should have actually been just fine. But mental illness hits everybody. Mental illness hits all demographics. It hits wealthy people. It hits poor people. Um, and that's really what we were struggling with. And I, I believe what's happening now, just to put my story in a broader context of what's happening to America is that mental health is spiritual health. And so I struggled with mental health while I was simultaneously suffering with spiritual, just toxic abuse, you know? And so for a long time, I, I was agnostic and I was angry at God. I didn't, I didn't even believe that there, there was a God. He probably hated me and I probably hated him too, if he, if he even existed. Um, and so I was agnostic for about 12 years. Uh, in part because religion was used to abuse me. And so I think when you see uh, our society You're right agnostic, now, not atheistic. You correct. believe there was... Well, I call it a, a fence-sitter. You're a cosmic fence-sitter. Sure. So that you're not willing to say that there is definitively no God or that there is there is a God. It's just, I don't know. When you say 12 years, what happened in the 12th year? Well... <laughs> I have a whole chapter that I start out saying that the two forces that brought me to Christianity were Donald Trump and science. <laughs> well, I've always wanted Donald Trump to watch the show. I think this is probably that moment. <laughs> he may already be watching or listening. But, well, uh, I, I, so it's it not necessarily not. flattering, but <laughs> because so... Um, you know, it's interesting, and I, I agree with Vivek Ramaswamy in his announcement video and uh, the statements he's been making about, and hopefully you'll have them on your program soon, but um, that we have a crisis of purpose and meaning in this country right now. Oh, and yeah, this people, is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual yeah. warfare, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and when so as people are walking away from God, in part, as, as, I, as I tell people, I mean, Cardinal Dolan up in New York invited me on his podcast because I had written an op-ed for the New York Post about uh, Gen Z inching their way to believing in God, in part because of COVID, creating this existential crisis of meaning, um, that they were slightly more willing to believe in God, but not necessarily religion. Um, and I, uh, a big theme of my book is that God is not religion. And because so many people have been deeply wounded by religion. Well, religion is a human institution. Exactly. It's not a spiritual institution. Correct. And, and the confusion <clears throat> in many people's minds yeah. when they see religious abuse, whether it's pedophilia or by, you know, by a priest, or in my case, my cult leader father using religious Did language to abuse Did he have other people in the cult besides the kids? Did he get any other joiners? We were moving so much that it didn't happen. We didn't have any groupies following us, but okay. we would have people crop up. You know, now if we, you know, they might come visit us in the campground, or um, you know, maybe some people in the ward would. Overall, like I said, the Mormon Church—they were skeptical of him. Unfortunately, they were not proactive in helping prevent the child abuse. And I firmly believe that my two brothers would not be schizophrenic 
if they had not been raised in this environment because they were healthy children. It's the Bill Walton Show. I'm <laughs> talking with Carrie Sheffield and, and her extraordinary personal story. And, and uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, she, she's got her books coming out in a few months. And I, you know, it can't quite be a cliffhanger because you turned out so brilliantly. <laughs> I mean, but there had to be a turning point. There well, had the, to be an epiphany. The, and you the, mentioned well, the you Donald had a, you Trump had a and the science. The Donald Trump. Yes. Let's not forget the Donald <laughs> My Trump. My conversion, yes. If we, if we could, if we, we can have some humor here. We can think about the orange man as being part of your <laughs> yes. salvation. Yes, the priest, <laughs> the orange man priest. <laughs> no, so, so I think years later now, just looking back, I think what had happened was uh, there's and God rest his soul, Tim Keller. I love his work. Um, he was very influential in my conversion. But uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who was a longtime pastor in New York City, Presbyterian, uh, his, his church. He said it's a church for skeptics. He welcomed atheists. He welcomed agnostics. Years later, I read a book that he had written called Counterfeit Gods. And each chapter is a counterfeit god that we as humans worship instead of God. That so we're worshiping the gifts instead of the giver of the gifts. So he has a chapter on, you know, for women, it's, you know, marriage and family for men, it's sex, uh, money, power, politics. I ran the whole gamut. I tried all, I tried all the gods. All these false gods. I tried all the false every, gods. Every single false yes. god. And yeah. they kept failing me. Yeah. You know, I, I tried career and then I got laid off. Um, I tried, you know, finding a guy. I couldn't find a guy. I dated some abusive men who were really hurtful to me because I, as an abused woman, you don't believe you deserve better. And so that's another counterfeit God. Um, and then finally, I thought I had settled on a God that wouldn't fail me, and that was the God of politics. And yeah. I was agnostic. And I had got my master's. I had a full tuition journalism scholarship to the Harvard Kennedy School, and it's named after JFK Kennedy. And I believe now, looking back, that I had in some ways kind of put JFK is almost like a messiah type figure. You know, he was assassinated for his people, just like Martin Luther King Jr., just like Abraham Lincoln, which I just recently learned he died on Good Friday, um, which is very symbolic. Hmm. Um, but uh, these figures had become my religious icons. That had become my religion was my politics. And then Donald Trump happened. <laughs> and I was like, I can't worship that. <laughs> he was... There may be false gods, this. but he's not, we're not. No, I can't worship that. Okay, well then. <laughs> so I was like, I, I need a new religion. <laughs> well, we're all kind of, I think we're all in the studio. We all want to come and hold hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was by default. It was just I realized, Carrie. So does that make you, you are, a never Trumper? I am a recovered never Trumper. So You're yes, recovered never. You yes. think he's okay? Uh, well, yeah. in, in part because I um, so in I ended up getting baptized Episcopalian. I now have major theological concerns with Episcopalianism as it's practiced today. Well, but the, it was a the good middle ground church for me. is the ultimate human institutions yes. captured by the left. It has. It's it not has. spiritual. It has. But for me, it was a good holding ground because, again, I was 
I'm coming out of hostility toward organized religion. Sure. So to go from that to a more secular humanist environment, it was a good sort of gateway for me. Um, again, sure. I'm sure. not, you don't have to go I don't agree with it. it. Yeah, yeah. It was me putting my toe in the water. Um, and there are some wonderful Episcopalians. Um, and in fact, the, the head right now, uh, Michael Curry, the presiding bishop, um, the African-American gentleman, he gave the sermon at the Royal wedding. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a lovely man and his, uh, he, he's a very loving person. I mean, he's completely wrong on politics. I've interviewed him multiple times. His deputy was one of my godparents for my baptism. Um, lovely man. And the fact that he's willing to even have a dialogue, he was actually under a lot of pressure because every inauguration, the, immediately after the swearing in, they have the inaugural prayer at the National Cathedral. And he was under a lot of pressure by the hard left to cancel Trump. And he said, no, he said, he's a child of God. And, and you know, he said, oh, he needs prayer the most. So he's like, <laughs> I'm going to let him, we're going to do it. You know, so he, so to his credit, he allowed that to happen. But uh, all that to say is when I went through my confirmation, uh, one of the things they talked about was the divine order, which is God, man, things. That's divine order. And I had been operating for that 12 years as an agnostic with man, things, don't know about Not that. Not even God's on yeah. the scene, yeah. yeah. So once I reoriented my worldview to understand divine order, I could totally handle Donald Trump because I don't worship politics anymore. So once it became God man, uh, God man things, I don't expect divinity from my that's, politics. That's where you are now. Yeah, and I and I I was happy to vote for Trump in 2020. Yeah. I think he did amazing things to. Uh, uh, part of why I was skeptical in 2016 was that he had donated Hillary Clinton, that he had no track record. I just was like, I don't know if he's conservative or well, not. He I, was the most Christian of all presidents, and things like putting, you know, the the. I don't want to get into the whole agenda, but he he did all the thing. I was involved with Council for National Policy, and we brought him in 2016, and we had a group of people in that room who just hated him. Mm -hmm. And before that, Steve Moore and I had given a talk to the to everybody saying, well, look, here's his economic policy. We think you really like it. And they kind of, this was just before the convention, they kind of woke up to that, that they could support him. And they became his most ardent supporters. Mm -hmm. because he delivered for what's on their no, agenda. And, and that's, I mean, that's what the Bible says, by your fruits you shall know them. I mean, yeah, his fruits. By your fruits, yeah. By your fruits, like um, religious liberty. I mean, I, I believe he was the first U.S. president to raise this issue at the U.N. Um, and the fact that globally, you've got hundreds of millions of Christians. It's Christianity is the most persecuted religion globally, and it was the Trump administration to raise this issue. It's a human rights issue. And... Um, and then even domestically as well with religious freedom, it's, uh, I mean, he's, he delivered, he had the fruits and then obviously the economic policy and, um, and also just his arguments about, uh, media bias. That was very convincing for me. Um, and then on racial issues too, to say that this is a country that is, you're judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. That's what it means to be an American. And he reminded us of that. Boy, so many places. So, unfortunately, we've we've only got so much time to talk. So, what what are we? What's your takeaway? You went through hell, really, and you're back now. You're you're a bright young person. We're a long way from the beginning of this conversation, where I thought we might talk about modern monetary theory. <laughs> we can do 
that next episode. We, can, that? Do that. we can do that next time. All right. So if you're interested in modern monetary theory, sorry, this is not your show. But we can also talk about, I didn't, I didn't get to the science part as well, because it was Donald Trump and science and my conversion. So okay, let's do the science, science piece. We, let's take, yeah, let's oh, do it. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so, you know, when, when I had the political existential crisis, I, that's when I started to put my toe in the water. I was going to Episcopalian church. I was going to Tim Keller's church. Um, and I was hosting a talk show in New York at the time, a, a web talk show with Clay Aiken, who was the American Idol co-star. Sure. Yeah. Um, very good friend. It was bipartisan because he, he's progressive. I'm conservative. So it was left-right banter show. And we had the publicist for Deepak Chopra, who sure. uh, is very good friends with Oprah. And he's, you know, big into new age. He was raised Hindu. He's actually on the board for AI issues for the Catholic Church. He's very, you know, being raised in India, he's very connected with the Catholic Church, um, very well versed in Christianity. He wrote a book called The Third Jesus, which in his view is Jesus was not man or divine, either or. The third way, he's basically was like a Buddha, like a human who became enlightened. That's his view of Jesus. But anyway, he co authored a book called You Are the Universe with a PhD physicist from MIT. And the book, it was all about metaphysics and probabilities and unknowable scientific calculations and all of the ways that human measurement and knowledge were so limited and just unknowable. And then also just that it actually takes more faith to be an atheist when you're talking about the precision of the universe, as they say, the fine tuning theory. Um, it's such a small probability that this just happened by random <laughs> chance that it, it gave me a solid, just, you know, God gives us our minds, you know, he wants us to look at the world around us. And just also knowing the, the heritage of, you know, Harvard University, for example, was was founded, the first university in America was founded to create, to uh, train clergy, it was to, to glorify God by obtaining knowledge. So when, when the left tries to paint Christians as, you know, you know anti-science, I mean, Look at history and in the Catholic Church as well, in terms of the this legacy of of priests and uh, monks and and their commitment to science and the law and and uh, enlightenment. So, anyway, I was very moved by that book um, in terms of just understanding again, opening the door to believing in God to a um, through science. Yes, spiritual. Yep. And then he thinks he thinks I went too far by becoming Christian. I'm like, come on, Deepak, let's get you <laughs> through the Christian door. So. <laughs> But I talk about him in the book, and you he's, he's you given me an endorsement for the book. So. That's, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, less, lessons for us. I mean, you're you're such a. You, it sounds like we're just at the beginning of a, a next big new chapter for you. What what's your lesson for today for us? Well, um, I think the um, our institutions are under attack. Um, I think that as someone who was a survivor of religious abuse for, for, for a while, I was actually, I was kind of toying with some of these ideas of accepting, you know, just throwing the baby out with the bathwater because I had been so hurt by Western religion um, that some of those things, those siren songs were appealing to me. And so I think having compassion for people who are struggling, whether it's with gender dysphoria or things like that, I responded and I changed, like God brought me out of all of this through compassionate people, not through derisive, nasty tweets. People, people aren't going to, they're going to turn away from that. So I think, I think 
having compassion on people who are lost, not ridiculing them, um, not not excusing, you know, ridiculousness or, or danger or the threat, the very real threat um, that this is posing, especially to children, um, being very transparent and, and unvarnishedly telling the truth about it. But I think at the end of the day, as someone who is a very imperfect Christian, I think if we can, you know, Jesus said, be wise as servants, but harmless as doves. And, and finding that balance that he, he, Jesus punched up. He, he, he went after the religious authorities, but for people who were lower in society that were lost, he was very compassionate. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for telling the story. Is this the first time you've had a chance to tell it in this forum or have you, you? Um, I gave a talk a few weeks ago in Long Island, okay. but it was a private event. So Okay, well, we'll, we uh, we'll, we'll, we're, we're out there and we've got a great book to, to read and learn yep. from. And I expect you're going to be hearing, you're gonna, a lot of people are going to be hearing from you uh, about this because this is the, th these, are the, these are the real issues. They are. And, and it's so much, once I understood, again, the divine order, yeah. God, man, things, everything made so much more sense politically. I, I like to say uh, when I was agnostic, I thought of, God is a bug, you know, like a cell phone. Got my cell phone here. You've got one, <laughs> 1 1.0, 2.0, 3. Point. You got all the operating systems that are always advancing. I thought the human race through enough science and technology that we would eventually get the God bug out, that God was just some made up mumbo jumbo sociological construct to make people feel good about themselves, but we didn't need it, that we would get science and technology to never be perfect, but as close as possible that we could get rid of God. And Eventually, I discovered that I'm the bug. <laughs> Humans are the bugs. <laughs> a lot and of you us. can't there work us there, out. <laughs> there are a lot of us bugs around. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for sharing. And then Thank uh, you. <laughs> some way we'll find our way back into, uh, into the Federal Reserve, but not, not, not today. So this, this has been the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with the extraordinary Carrie, Carrie Sheffield and and her story. And uh, I think there's a lot uh, I certainly learned and can take away from it. I hope you did too. Uh, as always, we welcome your comments on Substack or on our website. And uh, please subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe and, and tell them we'll take you on an interesting journey. And today we went from Jay Richards to Donald Trump as the catalyst to no longer think politics is God. Is that, is that right? <laughs> anyway. Sorry, Carrie, thank Donald you. Donald Trump, the missionary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the final word. So thanks for joining and uh, we'll be talking again soon. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.